So this uh, evening, I would like to look at a few different things connected in a way with the theme of uh, secular dharma, secular retreat, secular meditation. Because in a way, what, what would be secular meditation? Uh, in which, which way would it be different? Or maybe not so different? And so personally, I think it might be more connected to the context in which the meditation takes place. I don't think the meditation is different. I think possibly the context is different. And I think what is different in terms of context is that nowadays you can find many different techniques very easily. So you go to London, you go to Bristol, you go to different Berlin, Paris, and you can do many different techniques. You can do many different meditation in many different contexts. And even in Korea, recently I went to Korea to do some uh, meditation. And even there, the context also has changed. Because before they just had what they call kanwasan, the true practice, <laughs> the best practice. And they're finding, you know, since about 10, 15 years, they have some competition. <laughs> you know, competition with Vipassana, competition with Tibetan Buddhism, a bit of mindfulness. And uh, a few years back, I was there, and I have a friend who is a great practitioner. He's practiced a lot. He's also very active, he does a lot of farming, building. And so I was trying to see, you know, how would he connect with mindfulness? So I was trying to explain mindfulness, and he said, yeah, it's okay, but I mean, they don't go to emptiness. <laughs> After that, what can you say? <laughs> And it's very interesting because in Korea at the moment, they think that the Korean style, traditional style of meditation is too hard. And for this reason, people do Vipassana because it's so much easier. So you see, you know, what you've been doing is very easy. So they think. But to me, what was interesting was practicing for 10 years in Korea and just doing something very simple there. You just ask, what is this? And that's all you do. But you do this within a certain context, a very rich context, actually. And so recently I did this uh, five days of retreat with this new master in Korea. And to me, what was fascinating was to see how you have the questioning and you have this rich context around it. And then he made it into something else. And so for four days, we were just hearing the same thing. Do what is this or die. And that's it. 
and you could offer this or that. No. What is this or die? So in a way, there you have kind of the practice reduced to his kind of like basic kind of building block, and that was it, which was a little strange for me. Though it was interesting to see what was happening. So in a way, to me, what I think is useful in looking at different style meeting, I think this is what it, the, the difference with secular with of this world, of this time, is the fact that geographically, the borders are very porous. Tibetan monks can go to Korea, Korean monks can go to Europe, and vice versa. And so actually, what is different is just that there is this multiplicity of techniques that we presented with. And to me, that then, the point about a secular approach could be to look within all these different techniques. What is the basis? What is what is in common? Because often when we look at different techniques, we look at what is different. To me, what is interesting is what is common. And so that's what I realized after having done these 10 years of just asking this question. And then all my friends in England were doing, uh, at the time it was called insight meditation, now it's called mindfulness meditation. It's the same thing. And everybody was doing insight, mindfulness, awareness. And I tried it out. And I thought, hmm, that's a good method. But what I could see is that the basis is the same. And the basis of any Buddhist practice, it seems to me, is anchoring and investigation. So of course you have the two terms, originally are samatha and vipassana. But then when you take the two terms, samatha and vipassana, then generally the way they translate it is, Stephen mentioned it this morning, concentration and insight. But actually, samatha, I think, can, and vipassana can be looked from two different aspects. The aspect of cultivation and the effect of that cultivation. And according, if you look at cultivation of effect of the cultivation, there will be a different translation. So samatha also often is referred as calm. So if you look at the cultivation, what you do is anchoring, focusing, grounding. And that generally helps you to become more calm. The same with vipassana. Vipassana means to look deeply. And the effect of that can be insight, can be clarity. And so in a way, when we sit in meditation, or walk, or stand, or lie down, and we try to practice, we're basically trying to cultivate these two together. And so, in a way, we need one aspect of the practice, as Stephen mentioned this morning, is this collectedness. Personally, 
I rather like the term nowadays, anchoring. To see that what we're doing is anchoring, is using an object to anchor. And so what it means is that you're not kind of, it's not a stasis on the object. It's not grasping at the object, that it be the breath, that it be the body, that it be the sound, or whatever we choose, or a question, or a quality like loving kindness. But it's kind of like a point of reference. Because generally, a lot of the time, we are dispersed. We are following things, sometimes overwhelmed, sometimes lost, sometimes confused. And so, to me, one of the really important aspects of the anchoring is that it helps us actually to be here. I see that as one of the major functions of anchoring. That when we're not anchored in the breath, the sound, or whatever it might be, we're somewhere else, let's say. So we might, and then how are we somewhere else? Is it that there is just a thought? And in a way, we're aware of the thought. Or there is a sound, we're aware of the sound. Or there is a sensation, we're aware of the sensation. Or is it that when something, we come into contact with something, we stick to it, and then we got lost in it. And then when we lost in a thought, or we absorbed, obsessed by a sensation, or obsessed by a sound, or by a feeling, it's like we narrow our experience to this one element of our condition. And to me, I think that's what anchoring is an antidote to. The fact that you might say, oh, I cannot concentrate. I personally think you have a great power of concentration, but possibly not meditative concentration. When you cannot stop thinking about somebody, when you cannot stop thinking about a problem, you are really concentrated. <laughs> but in an obsessive manner, in a kind of a closing off manner. So here we're not trying to focus to anchor in a closed off manner, on the contrary. Notice, as soon as you come back to the breath, to the body, tomorrow to the sound, you come back to the whole experience. And this has a power to de-amplify what is happening, because we have a tendency to amplify what we get in contact with and what we hold on to. And so in a way, we might move into a thought, a sensation, a feeling, a memory. And so we reduce ourselves to that. And then we come back to the breath. And if, if we're not battling with, I must come back to the breath, this is bad, I must come back. This is really not the idea. Because again, there you will have the same amplifying effect. But if you, oh, let's come back to the breath. Notice you come back to the breath, you come back to the whole moment. The inner condition meeting the outer condition. And that's why I think one of the effects of anchoring is to bring a certain calm, but I would say also a certain spaciousness. 
because we come back to something which is more multi-perspectival. And to me, this is in a way one of the main points of the anchoring, to come back to the whole. And then we, within that experience, there is so many different aspects of ourselves and the environment. And notice when we get obsessed by something that everything is like disappear. The potential, the possibility goes and just oh, this feeling, this thought, this memory. And then when we come back to the breath or to the body or to the sun, it's like opening up again. And so we can play around with that when we see to see the opening and the closing in a way. And we can do the same in daily life. We can see where we can oh, get stuck on something. And then we can use the anchoring as a means to come back. This is, to me, this is something I do a lot in my daily life, kind of trying to help out with my mother with losing her memory. And so sometimes I have lots of spaciousness and she can repeat the same thing several times. And yes, 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 no problem. And then sometimes I feel And it's interesting. Sometimes I get the feeling I should have the right to be angry about this. And I can see this, kind of there is this feeling and I could identify with it and I could think, yes, let's be frustrated. <laughs> it's my right. And then I think, mm, what would be the point? It's really not going to help the situation. So then I go back to anchoring. And generally I go back to the body, I go back to the breath. And then it's like from ooh, this feeling of tensing and closing to this feeling of opening and spaciousness. And then I have lots of space. And so this is kind of an interesting thing to play around, of course, when we sit here, but also in daily life. And then you have the other aspect which is also very important, and this is investigation, looking deeply. And this is very much about just being in the experience and noticing the organic aspect of the experience, that it changes. And I think what is very important to see with this vipassana if you translate it as inside, there is this expectation, I must have an insight of a major nature. When actually I think what it is about is so that in a very organic way, the whole body and mind, complex and heart, we totally know, ah, things change. Because you can know something intellectually it doesn't mean that you know it experientially. And so this kind of like vipassana, this looking deeply is really being with change, experiencing it again and again in a very simple way. Sounds change, breath change, sensation change. And just to notice, oh, it's gone, oh, it's gone. Or to notice that even if something remain the same for some time within itself. It changes. 
This is what is interesting with pain. Like I have a tendency to have sciatica. So at the moment, it comes, it goes. And so like the, the last sitting I arrived, I had, you could say, I had the symptom of sciatica. I had this pain going down my leg. I sit. And within five minutes, it's gone. To me, that's why I think it's beautiful about sitting in meditation. I have the best posture when I sit in a chair in meditation. And often, the sciatica just go by itself, just by having a good posture. And I know that, that it comes and it goes. So then often, I, I just observe it. And to me, this is really something if we can really know it, experience it with the thought, the sensation, the feeling, the sound, the environment, I think it again brings some flexibility, some softness, some exploration to daily life. So that when you experience something, instead of this is going to last forever, how long is this going to last? And then it really becomes an exploration because something just arrives and pass away. And then something seems to come again and again. But what is interesting here is that yes, they come again and again, but not all the time to the same degree. And that's where there is another aspect that the Buddha asked us to look into, which is conditionality to just be aware of conditions. Because often we have this feeling, I am stuck, I cannot stop doing this. Or I cannot, it's always the same. And so in a way you kind of see you have certain limitation, but what is the kind of the flexibility around limitation? Like I went to Korea and you might think, it's exotic and everything. But when people ask me, oh, you're going to Korea, you must be so happy. I said, mm, yeah, we'll see. Because I was very aware uh, that it was going to be hot. There might be many mosquitoes. I would have to sleep on the floor and I have a bad back. The food was not going to suit me. So I did not, in a way, look forward to all these different conditions. I just thought, well, there are these conditions which are generally not very helpful, but these conditions are not going to stop me from going. Because the reason I was going was, I might learn something. That's the reason I went. Oh, I could learn something. So let's go. Let's try it out. Even though I know there are these different conditions which are a little so-so. So in a way, this conditionality, you have certain condition, and according to other elements, they might be more difficult or less difficult. And so in a way, the change in the conditionality is for us to see, yeah, certain thoughts, certain feelings, certain sensations are relatively repetitive but they're not happening all the time to the same degree. And then we can inquire, what are the conditions? 
What happens? So then I slept on the floor. I shared the room. But then I found some cushions. <laughs> so, I mean, I was still on the floor, but it was okay. I had my little kind of princess with the pea. <laughs> folded everything. So it was very narrow, but it suited, <laughs> suited. So it's kind of like, does it stop you from doing something? Or do we creatively engage with the condition? This is very much where these things are repetitive, but not to the same degree all the time. And then, of course, sometimes things are really intense, but again, because of specific condition. And within themselves, they can be a little changed too. So this is what is interesting with the vipassana. The vipassana to me, often I translate it as experiential inquiry. So it's kind of like trying to be in the experience. What is going on? And trying to be in touch organically with that change, with that conditionality. And that generally, of course, cultivating that will help us to be more open, more flexible, more creative. And to me also, to me this is one of the important points about the practice, is that I feel that this aspect, the vipassana aspect, is actually what's going to help us to move toward wisdom and compassion. And this leads me to the second thing I want to talk about tonight, is in a way, why are we doing this? Why are we continuing to do this? And to look at, in a way, in terms of practice, often you hear there should be no goal. Or you hear, I mean, with uh, the teacher I was with in Korea, because I was sitting at the back, I was not teaching anything, I was just a participant. And it was so fascinating because he wanted them to experience something very definite. So, you know, so he was checking after two days, have you got it yet, you know? It was kind of like, they needed to have it, you know? And after two days, they were not having it, you know, so. And then the third day, they started to have it, so then he started to smile. <laughs> and I think that when we look, at intention in terms of the practice. And what I find interesting is to look at goal. I know this is not some uh, word you should bring into the spiritual path, but I think it's a good thing to think about. And in a way to think about two aspects of that, what I would call short-term goal and long-term. That in a way, we're sitting in meditation not because we have nothing better to do. We generally sit in meditation with a certain intention, with a certain aspiration. So it's kind of, in a way, what is going to give us energy. But what is interesting to look at is actually there is two things. You have this short-term goal, and I can remember for myself, when I started, uh, when I was in my 20s, why I decided to do meditation and why this led me to become a nun 
was actually because I suddenly saw from 18 to 22, I came making the same mistake, which caused the same suffering. And I thought, do I want to continue to do this? And I thought, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to keep repeating the same mistake and get the same suffering. I thought three times is enough. And then I thought, well, maybe meditation might help me not to go into this repetition, which then I've created this suffering. So in a way, that was my short-term goal, was not repeating the same pattern, finding a way not to be so caught. But the long-term goal, you could see more as part of a whole life project, which was that from a very young age, wisdom and compassion were very important for me. So I see this as kind of like a fundamental value of my life. How can I cultivate the condition so that wisdom and compassion are more likely to manifest. And so what was uh, interesting for me was that I became a nun and I started to practice. And also I was doing the questioning. Within five months, I became more aware and I became much clearer about what was a pattern about. Much clearer, what was I thinking? How was I thinking? But also, I became more compassionate. And compassionate meaning, I became more aware of the other for themselves and not for myself. And to me, that was a real breakthrough. To be able to see the other before seeing myself, seeing my own interest. And so seeing that, I thought, oh, this is working. So then in a way that gives me faith to continue. And so to me, it seems that as we practice, the motivation, the intention, the aspiration is going to move between the two. And sometimes you sit in meditation and it's and you kind of sit there and you do whatever you do, yes, yes, yes. And nothing happens. And you're like, why am I doing this? I mean, generally you do it because at some point something has happened or you hope something will happen. And so in a way, I would say it's not just on faith. It's on faith which comes from experience. And in a way, faith that not only in the practice, but faith in yourself, that I can do this. And to me, this was very clear what this teacher was trying to do uh, in the retreat I was attending, is that he was trying to have them have such an experience that then they would have great faith in the practice and in themselves. And this I think we can do in many different ways. We can do a little like kind of a heavy training style like he was trying to do, do or die. 
Or we can do it, of course, in a more gradual way, that the two feeds each other, that we have certain experience when we sit, but we also have certain experience when we are in our daily life. We feel more grounded, we feel more kind, we feel more compassionate. And so maybe, in terms of these two elements coming together, the anchoring and the looking deeply. I think, of course, they can have us experience certain meditative experiences. But at the same time, to me, I think what they're doing is kind of, in a way, removing the obstacle, dissolving the grasping, dissolving the amplifying, so that then our compassion, our wisdom can arise can manifest. And in the manifestation of it, that's what is very interesting, and Stephen will talk more about it later, how once the wisdom and the compassion arise, once the awareness is there, then actually you don't need to do much for it to maintain itself. I think this is, that's why back to what I was talking about yesterday in the instruction about the effort Often we feel we need a lot of effort for things to move. But sometimes actually we don't need so much effort. We actually just need to be there for what is happening. And sometimes you have this wisdom, you have this compassion, you have this clarity, you have this calm, and it just requires for us to just be there. And then it maintains itself for a while and then like all things, it's impermanent. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about, it's a, a mindfulness, a practice, which I think is very important. And to me, in terms of the secular dharma, secular meditation, I think it's a really vital practice in terms of doing it on retreat or in terms of doing it in daily life. And this is actually the second foundation of mindfulness. And it's the mindfulness of feeling taught. So we've done so far mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, which is the first foundation. And the second foundation is mindfulness of Vedana, V-D-A-N-A. And to me, that is really, I think, a very profound way to practice. And so that's why I want to explain it a little bit today, and then tomorrow I want to talk more about it during the instruction. And so in a way, what you have first is you have contact. So you have contact. You see, you hear, you smell, you taste, you sense, you think. And so one moment, you don't hear something, next moment you do. One moment you don't have a thought, next moment you do. So that's a moment of contact. Something appears. Something coming into contact with your senses. And at the same time there is contact, there is feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, 
and neutral. And here, what the Buddha is saying about this is that we have an underlying tendency to react very fast to feeling torn. So if it's pleasant, I know yesterday, yesterday we had uh, lasagna, one of the best lasagna I have ever had. And I cannot eat very much because of my stomach, but I was mightily tempted to have more. The pleasant feeling toll was really high, and I thought, mm. but I did not. But I really enjoyed it as I were eating what I took. And so in a way, if something is pleasant, we want it to continue, we want more of it, we want to repeat it. If something is unpleasant, we don't want it. And also, what is interesting with the unpleasant feeling tone, and that's why I think it's so vital that we're aware of it, is that it seeps. So the pleasant feeling tone has also an effect, and we'll talk more about it later. But if you have a pleasant feeling tone, generally, Nice. The problem with the pleasant feeling tone is that generally you take it for normal. Unless it's plus five, and then you start to feel, hmm, that is really nice. I mean, like the lasagna was at least plus nine, you know. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Same with uh, at lunchtime, we had the beauty, I never had this before, the beautiful sauce. I thought, wow, that's you know, number nine. So then I thought, hmm, should I go down and get more? I thought, no, no, enjoy it, enjoy it as it is. So the thing with the pleasant is that it really has to be quite high for us to think, oh yeah, that's so pleasant. If it's under five, it's like, it should be that way. Kind of a little kind of... And then with the unpleasant is opposite. You have... Minus one unpleasant, no way. I mean, you immediately notice it. Immediately, I don't want this. And so we have a very quick reaction to the unpleasant. And the thing is that, the thing with the unpleasant feeling tone is that it's going to totally connect with that notion of dukkha, that notion of pain, that notion of suffering. The problem with the unpleasant feeling tone is that it will quickly associate with other unpleasantness. Not right now, but in the past, or even in the future. We have a tendency to very quickly amplify with the unpleasant feeling tone. So very quickly we associate with things in the past, or things in the future, or other things in the present which might have nothing to do with it. And that's why it's so important to be aware of it, to see, oh, I am experiencing this unpleasant feeling tone because of that. Because sometimes you get an unpleasant feeling tone over there because of this, and then suddenly you find yourself speaking nastily to somebody who has not done anything to you. 
but because of the spreading to over there. And I think that's why, in a way, that's one of the beauty of uh, the teaching of the Buddha and which we could really bring into a secular Dharma is this mindfulness of contact and then mindfulness of feeling tone. Not, you see, what if we have to be careful with the feeling tone. This is not an analysis. This is not like a scientific study. So we become these amazing researchers in terms of, you know, five and a half, minus two and a quarter. But it's more that we become aware of them and so become aware of how much they influence us. That, I think, is really something really important. Because a lot of the time, so you see, from the Buddhist perspective, you have the contact, then you have the feeling tone. From our perspective, what happened is that the feeling tone very quickly becomes more like a feeling sensation then generally it becomes an emotion. Then generally we try to give lots of meaning to that emotion, and then generally it becomes a disturbing emotion. And by the time it's done that, you've forgotten. There was a contact, and there was a first feeling tone. And so in a way, a meditation retreat, because hopefully things are not intense, I hope, then you can see more the feeling tone. There is kind of more space to see them. We're not such in a hurry. We're not bombarded by different things. I mean, if you want a good example of uh, a modern manifestation of the feeling tone, Facebook, Instagram. You know, Facebook up, pleasant. Facebook down, unpleasant. Same with Instagram, I like it. If you don't put I like it, you mean it's neutral or I don't like it. So here, I mean, actually, all these Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these people, they really understand actually the feeling tones without being Buddhist. It's very interesting because that's what it is about. Contact and feeling tone. And in a way, it's really about immediacy. And so here it's a bit the same, but with very different uh, framework. That since we have more space, we have more time, we are in silence. I think silence can really help also with that. And to really start to see all these different feeling tones. Because you have six senses, you could have six different feeling tones. But then sometimes it's like you have one suddenly one contact with one feeling tone predominate. And then everything becomes pleasant. Ah, oh, it's fantastic. Guy house, I love it. Or one feeling tone unpleasant predominate. This is terrible. This is awful, etc. And so when we are on a retreat, I find it's such a wonderful opportunity because then you can see more, in a way, the fine grain. This is a, wor a word we learned a few years back at a scientific conference, granularity. And I think on a retreat, you can see more, oh, this. I see something and it's pleasant. I hear something, 
little toward little and place that. And you can see how he shift. And then according, this is also what is interesting in terms of attention. What are you paying attention to? Are you paying attention more to, let's say, a pain in the knee? Or are you paying more attention to the sound of the bird? What are we paying attention? Because that's the thing we have to see, that as soon as we pay attention to something, as I said the other day, you can have an intensifying effect. So then we can see, how do I focus on something? How do I focus on a certain contact, a focus on a certain feeling tone? By that focus, do I amplify it? Or by that focus, does it help me to creatively engage? Then, of course, you have the neutral feeling tone. And I'm a great fan of it. Stephen does not believe in it. Stephen believes that it moves fast. You have neutral and it moves fast because there is a saying, if you understand neutral, it becomes pleasant. If you don't understand neutral, it becomes unpleasant. So he think it does not exist because it moves one side from the other. Personally, I think there is something like that. But, and to me, the way I look at it in terms of neutral is more, because this is a big debate, neutral feeling tone in the Buddhism. Because uh, I canvassed friends, scholars' friends, about the neutral feeling tone. And so some think it doesn't exist, some other thing it's indeterminate, something it's, uh, it's vague, some other things it's equanimity. That's also, there is a whole uh, strand of Buddhism where they think that neutral is uh, equate with equanimous. But that I think we have to be very careful with that idea that it doesn't mean that equanimity is about being neutral. And secondly, it doesn't mean that the aim of the practice is that everything becomes neutral. That's not the idea that we have to be careful. But I think what it is saying is that equanimity has a little taste of the neutral. And why that? Because it's not this or that. It's kind of in the middle. And to me, I would see neutral also as a resting base. Because I don't think we can be all the time in unpleasant. We, can be, we cannot be all the time in pleasant. But we go up and down. And so I see it more as kind of like uh, equilibrium that we have to come back to again and again. Then we go up, then we go down. And then, of course, on a retreat like this in silence, you have a great opportunity to creatively engage with neutral. And then you can see that sometimes it's boring. I am. And sometimes it's, ah, it's peaceful. It's so peaceful. It's restful. And so again, you have the, in a way the same feeling tall, neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And then we might relate to it in very different ways. 
again, depending on conditions. So this is something I want to explore more tomorrow, and we'll talk more about it in the instruction in terms of doing it. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? So, yeah, of course, of course. You see, I think what we have to be careful is, like, for example, when I talk about neutral, I am not talking, in a way, about a permanent feeling tone. I think it's kind of, in a way, to see that it's a spectrum. So, one side of the spectrum, you have ecstasy. Other side of the spectrum, you have agony. And then you have things in between. But it seems to me there is a place for a feeling tone where, of course, it's back to what the nun said. If you understand neutral feeling tone, it becomes pleasant. If you don't understand it, it becomes unpleasant. So, so in a way, I kind of feel it exists, but it can shift very fast. <laughs> I think that's why. But I think, personally, I would say it kind of is bound to exist in terms of this kind of like uh, equilibrium thing, that you go up and you go down, and that there is time where I would say nothing happens. So you could, it's fairly neutral, but it's true. If you have a good relationship to it, you think, oh, that's peaceful. Exactly, I agree. So it's kind of like the thing can exist, but then your relationship to it is in a way because you see, I think something I did not talk about, I might talk about tomorrow, is a fact that, okay, you have the feeling tone with the six senses, but I also think there is a feeling tone from the awareness itself. And that's why for a long time I could not find feeling tones. Because I was looking actually at the feeling tone of the awareness, which is often relatively neutral. And so I think there is something there too, the fact that you have the contact, you have the feeling tone with the contact, what you see, what you hear, what you taste, and there is also the feeling tone from the awareness itself, which change a little bit what's going on. And then it doesn't become neutral, 
but it has a different, I would say, peaceful quality often. And so I think that's also why kind of muddy the water, so to speak, I would say about that one. Yes. Partly, partly. Personally, I think, yes, of course. What is neutral often is, as you said, filtered out. Not really, con this, not really considered unless it shifts enough. And I would say it needs to shift quite a bit toward pleasant to notice the difference and doesn't need to shift much for the unpleasant. But yes, it's kind of like where I would say for some people, when it's neutral, it's like they, they just uh, awareness go nearly because there is nothing to really kind of which is intense enough that they can grab onto. And so often they kind of just become more, uh, less mindful, you could say, because it's uh, so often, yes, you could say that uh, partly the neutral feeling tone is often ignored. Yes. Okay, so that's very easy. You sit in meditation, you with the breath, and suddenly you remember a word somebody said. Let's say a pleasant word. Oh, you were so great, I'm so grateful. And you just have that memory of that person saying, I am so grateful, you're such a great person. And if you're okay with praise, you generally will have a pleasant feeling tone. But if you suddenly remember the person saying, you are terrible, I will never see you again, generally you will have an unpleasant feeling tone, unless you are so happy you won't see them again ever. <laughs> so it depends. But you can see that you can be sitting with the breath and then you kind of neutral, possibly pleasant, or if you have a little pain in the needle. And then just a thought. You see, that's what is so interesting with mindfulness of thought, is the fact that one minute it's not there, and next minute it's there. And sometimes it's just a word. That's what I find is so interesting, to not battle with the thought, but more explore, kind of, oh, what am I thinking and what's the feeling tone of it? Not why am I thinking that, but more, what's the feeling tone of that? And so you have some, I mean, daydreaming is pleasant feeling tone, really kind of high, high. Why do we do daydreaming when we sit? Because it's so pleasant, I mean, so entertaining. I ring the bell, oh, it's too early, you know. This one was a good one. <laughs> but why? Because you are sitting here, and then suddenly you have the thought, the first thought, if you look, it's, if I had, if I was. And that has this pleasant feeling tone. But then, if you 
fantasizing negatively, and that generally starts with, what if this happened? Then it's very different, because generally it's unpleasant. What if this happened? <gasps> and then you have this whole unpleasant feeling tone. And I think that's why it's not easy to see the contact. It's easier to see the contact with, you hear a bird, you don't hear it. You see something, you don't see it. But it's the same with thought. You have a thought, hmm. and then you can see, hmm, this is unpleasant. I'm going unpleasantly there. And I think that can be so useful. I mean, you might not see it at the beginning. I think you might see it in the middle or sometime at the end. Sometime you sit there, you, you know, it's fine and strange. And you realize you were having this quite negative kind of little go round until you came back to the breath. And, it's, and that's something which is very interesting. And we'll talk more about this tomorrow morning, is a changing nature of the feeling tone. So if the object goes, if the thought goes, does the feeling tone goes with it? Or does the thought goes, but the feeling tone stay? That's interesting. So, but we'll talk more about this in the instructions. Yes? Well, I often, it is, I mean, it is true, it is true. <laughs> you see, once uh, I was sitting, it was very interesting. I was sitting, you know, I was uh, guiding some people in France. I was helping out. And I was in this long train journey. And I was really aware that I was aware. I was totally mindful sitting there. But it was really neutral. And as I was observing it, I was starting to feel it was neutral, going toward a little bit unpleasant. <laughs> but for a long time, it was just basically neutral. It was just nothing is happening. I am aware. So yeah, I would say I kind of experiencing some of the time, but not all the time. And like we'll talk more about tomorrow, it shifts. You know, you could have this kind of just neutral feeling tone. You are aware of things, but not, nothing strong is happening. I think it's also, personally, I see it in terms also that conditions have different level. You could have what I call light conditions, repetitive conditions, or intense conditions. And I think this neutral feeling tone, one experience most of the time when it's light, not much is happening, not much is going on. You're not thinking anything special. You're not doing anything special. And so generally, it's fairly neutral. That's where I experience it, I would say. And personally, I think 
it's quite an healthy, I would say, feeling to have because it's kind of like, I would call more like a recuperative feeling because it's not intense. So it's kind of more restful, more peaceful. That's where I would kind of a little look at it. And so the whole system, the body-mind system, can kind of a little kind of be in repose, can be a little kind of, oh, I don't have to feel pleasant or I don't have to feel unpleasant. I can just be there. That's the way I would also interpret it a little bit. So maybe we'll stop here so that we can do some walking meditation before the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.